0: If you're new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. They look like this. And on the front side, you're going to get the verses we're going through today. You're going to get a place to ask a question on the bottom. And I told you last week to save your questions if you had them, and you can write them down this week. And on the back, you get a little uh, recap what we're talking about, and then again, you get these questions that you can talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community about because you may have some questions this week because I'm going to drop a bomb on you today. Okay. Uh, If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on more and then events and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smart device and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And here's the funny thing, because Sarah said, I want to sit in the front of the room and watch everybody's face when you read this verse. So here's the verse. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Shh. Let's pray. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, Father, we thank you for being good to us as a people. Now, I ask that you would teach us to understand what the scriptures mean in context, that we could know that we could trust them, what you've revealed, what you have written to us, and that we'd be those who faithfully live in accordance with the things that you say, so that you would be glorified, your people live in joy, and the world who does not know you would see who you are by how your people live. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing this series called Never Read a Bible Verse, and that doesn't mean we don't want you not to read your Bible. It means we want you to read your Bible in context, and we've been looking at things that have been misunderstood and misquoted and misused in the Bible, and we want to take a better, longer, harder look at a lot of these passages and questions so that we could understand them better. I was talking to somebody after week's message, and they said, you know what I appreciate about Element is that you guys will just talk about things every." their church is like, I don't know, man. I don't know. It just kind of, you guys just do it. And you're not always happy when we talk about these things because you may disagree. But I want to go back to the understanding of what is essential. We have close-handed issues. Our close-handed issues are who Jesus is, what the gospel means, the nature of man, the nature of sin, the nature of God, our salvation. Those are close-handed issues. But on this side, there are a lot of issues that are open-handed that we get to talk about. And this is what a lot of times we are doing, walking through what we believe the scriptures teach through a lot of these open-handed issues. And so last week we started with this understanding of men and women being created equal, that some people have used verses in the Bible to say that women are less than men, or the Bible is anti-women, or that God himself is sexist. And we started with this question of what does the Bible have to say about women really in particular? Because we talk about men a lot in the Bible because there's a lot of men in the Bible, but The question for us we were talking about last week is men and women equal in the eyes of God according to scripture. So we looked at some Old Testament verses. We walked through some of those things. This week we're gonna forage into the New Testament as well to help us to better understand what the Bible is teaching. And if you became offended last week, you might also be offended this week. And guys, I gotta tell you, this is here's my little side excursion, it's not in the notes, okay? So I I really got from both sides last week. Different people, not just one or two, but multiple people last week on both sides of this issue coming and asking me questions and being irritated with me. And so I just wanted to kind of start here so you understand who Element is and where we're coming from. When you go through the Old Testament scriptures, you will see that women were called to be judges and prophets and leaders. But the one thing they never were in the Old Testament was priests. Now, the interesting thing in that is that there were prophets and there were leaders who actually instructed and helped the priests. So it's not like, oh, you're less than. It, God had these different roles. Now, when you come to the New Testament, somebody asked me last week at 930 at night, they texted me, and they said... and. The, she's not here. Okay. Uh, and they and they said, were well, you going to explain why Element has male elders? And Element does. Uh, in our eldership, we have male elders. And sometimes people have a problem with that. But I think that's because we don't really understand what eldership means anymore in the church. You go to a lot of places and every guy in a church is called an elder. Well, that's not eldership. You go to some churches and they have these bylaws that say you need 24 or 15 or 12 elders. Well, that's not an elder. Oh, it's the pastor's he's an elder that's not an elder an elder has qualifications laid down in the scriptures and one of the things that elders are supposed to do in a church is guard correct doctrine They're to make sure what is taught from the front from whoever teaches from the front or is going through Bible studies with that that doctrine has come along through what we say yes this is good this is reasonable this is what the scriptures teach element has three elders me, which I always feel like I'm the least of them, uh, Mike Harmon, who's right there, and Eric Gifruti, and I completely respect these guys. They, they speak into my life, I think I speak into theirs, and I love them in a way that is probably different than my love for almost anybody else because of my respect level for them. And so when I, when we go through these things in the scriptures and Element has male elders, a lot of times we talk about that in our gospel class. And the gospel class gives you a chance to ask questions and things go back and forth, and that's a great place to do it. It's not so easy in the midst of a sermon where I'm just talking at you, but I want you to understand our heart. And so after today, if you have questions, grab me, grab Mike, I think Eric will be here next service, and grab one and you can just go ahead and talk to us. You have questions and maybe we'll kind of push that off. I am going on vacation this week and I was telling everybody it's like I'm just dropping a bomb and like see ya <laughs> and, and walking off. But I want you to understand that, that in that, that has nothing to do with inequality in any way. It's what we believe the scriptures call us to and what we want to be is a scriptural church. Uh, sometimes when I talk like this, I feel like this is my never-ending take to whittle down the attendance and element. Uh, John this morning, he goes, yeah, you could say just go on and put our element forward slash Yelp and then leave your review. But we Talk about. Uh, and so, really, last week and this week in our messages, I wanted them to go hand in hand. But if I did that, you would have gotten a 70 minute message, which Mike Harmon says is like 100 minutes of information for me. So, I, w- we broke them up. If you were here last week, you'll have a lot of context when we talk about this week. If you weren't here last week, this will stand on its own, but you might have some questions. So, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to last week as well. And last week, we talked about three things. Number one, we talked about how there were no Bible verses in the beginning that sounded anti-women. There weren't any in that cultural context. The second thing we talked about is that we as fallen humanity brought about inequality. We brought about polygamy and all these patriarchal systems that people don't understand. We brought those about. And the third thing we talked about is how God still brings hope in the midst of all of the messes that we created. And I didn't really have time to get to all the glimpses of the women throughout the scriptures that really bring a lot of hope in the midst of that culture and ours. But the Bible does lift women up and shows you how God intended for them to be treated in the Old and the New Testaments to be again leaders prophets and teachers so I'm going to give you a few of those this morning this is not an exhaustive list I plan next summer to do a series called not so little women and we'll talk about women there but I'm gonna give you a few first off Miriam Uh, Miriam is Moses' sister God sent her with Moses and Aaron to redeem Israel when you hear the story of the Exodus you don't really hear a lot about Miriam but God it's interesting says that he sent her with them Micah chapter 6, verse 4 God says, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. It's like he says, so the Exodus isn't some sort of feminist rebellion. It's God bringing these roles together to complement one another in how God brings about liberation and hope to his people. Miriam is considered a prophet, and there is no qualification where she only speaks to women. And ultimately, her words become part of the scriptures that we have today. Uh, you've got Deborah in Judges chapter 4. Deborah is a prophet. She's a judge. She goes with military leaders and advises them. She has spoken of with respect and honor in the Bible and there is nothing about her stepping into a role that she wasn't supposed to be in. In 2 Kings chapter 22, you meet a woman named Huldah. I know Huldah sounds like something from How You Train Your Dragon and She's Making Soup in the Kitchen. I am Huldah. Do you want the soup? That That's not Huldah. Okay. Huldah is a female prophet. When King Josiah recommissions the, the rebuilding of the temple, they start the work and they find the book of the law. When they realize it was the scriptures, the king is saddened at how far the people had fallen away from who God called them to be, from the ways of God. And King Josiah is... He needs somebody to step in and teach the people what the scriptures meant. And this is the priests all the way down to the king's advisors. They all turn to Huldah. Scott McKnight writes this, Huldah was not chosen because no men were available. She's chosen because she is truly exceptional among the prophets. So during this time, it's like that Jeremiah, Nahum, Habakkuk are all prophesying at this time and available, but they go with Holda. It is places that you understand that many women are good teachers and people need to listen to them. Prophets were mouthpieces of God and Holda is an instructor, a teacher, and a prophet. In Isaiah chapter 8 verse 3 it tells you Isaiah's wife was a prophet. The prophet Joel will speak how God's spirit is going to be poured out on men and women alike. Uh, Esther, in the book of Esther, she doesn't start off that great, but she ends up being a person of such character that God uses her to save her people from extinction. Ruth is a woman Woman of such integrity and honor that she not only saves her mother-in-law you're thinking my mother-in-law yeah her mother-in-law she also becomes an ancestor of Jesus and so when we read Bible verses we don't understand we must usually see there's more going on in the context than we can see now, what you also have to understand that the majority of the voices in the Bible, they are male. And there's really nothing wrong with that. We need, though, both voices to come together. And God is making moves in that culture, in that day we talked about last week, and because we had destroyed the culture. We had not been focused on God and His gospel. So God is returning who people were meant to be. Now, the New Testament continues this trajectory with Jesus. So when Jesus dies for our sin and rises from the grave, He sends His Holy Spirit to be our advocate and our counselor. The Holy Spirit now is not just limited to prophets. The Holy Spirit, when we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells all believers, male and female, both. And we see Jesus' followers start to change the world, men and women, both. Now, if you look back in that culture, yes, there are some things that were not helpful to women in any way. Uh, A lot of the views they had, the first century historian Josephus wrote that the woman is in all things inferior to a man and the first thing I go to is, can you birth a baby, Josephus? I don't think that women are inferior in every way to a man. The rabbinical writings say there are four things ascribed to women, and I'm just the mailman, guys. I'm just reading, don't come after me here. But they say this, they are gluttonous eavesdroppers, lazy and jealous. Like, well, you know what? You are, but you know what? So are guys, we all are. We are all messed up. We can't go, that's not me, because too often, That's all of us, and it's not just one gender, it's both. We all end up doing these things. An actual prayer of some rabbis was this, praise be to God that he has not created me a Gentile. That's almost every single one of us. Praise be to God that he has not created me a woman. Praise be to God that he has not created me an ignoramus, which is funny because if you pray that prayer out loud, you might just be an ignoramus. (laughs) Now, it wasn't only Jewish people that said these things. When you look at the wider Greco-Roman culture, it was actually much, much worse. Uh, Greek poets wrote that women were the source of all evil in the world. Roman law placed a woman as property under her husband, and he had the power of life and death over her and his children. There were exceptions, as there always are, but they're the ones with the most money and the people who are the most connected. So how does Jesus regard women? Well, Jesus is countercultural and shocking to say the least because he treats women in that culture with dignity and respect. You know, the longest recorded conversation we have with Jesus and anybody else is in John chapter 4. And it is between Jesus and a woman who had been divorced five times with shacking up with another guy. And that's the longest recorded conversation we have. And what he does is he speaks about the gospel and who God is, and he sends her back into her village to be a missionary to her people. It's insane. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Martha is complaining that Mary isn't doing all of her chores, and she was just sitting at the feet of Jesus. Well, if you look at rabbinical commentators, every single rabbinical commentator will tell you that sitting at the feet of a rabbi is a euphemism for being a disciple. That Mary here is learning in this way. Martha's offended that Mary would presume to learn as a man. And what does Jesus do? He actually commends Mary. Luke chapter 10 verses 41 and 42, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which is which will not be taken from her. He wasn't saying, Martha, you shouldn't do all these other things that you're doing right now, but Mary has chosen the good thing. The first people Jesus reveals himself to after the resurrection are women, which scholars today will tell you is some of the best evidence for the resurrection because in that day, women couldn't testify and court. And if you're going to make up a story about Jesus rising from the dead, you certainly wouldn't have women as the first and maiden witnesses of the account. What you also see is Jesus travels with women. Jesus will actually even use at times, not all the time, but sometimes feminine imagery for God. He will say that God longs to gather his people as a mother hen longs to gather his chicks. When the book of Acts arrives, the church extends what Jesus is already doing. You have a woman, her name is Phoebe. In Romans 16, you see Paul will entrust the book of Romans easily, to me, the most theological work in the New Testament into the hands of Phoebe. Romans 16 verses 1 and 2, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now cultural practices in this day, this is a leap but cultural practices in that day would have the one who delivered the letter answer any questions about it. Now, we still have the craziest questions about the book of Romans, I have crazy questions about the book of Romans, and Paul entrusted to Phoebe. The first ever exposition of the book of Romans is most likely done by a woman. You have Priscilla and her husband Aquila. Paul leaves them in Ephesus to continue his work that's there. They will eventually end up in Rome. In Acts chapter 18, verse 26, they take one of the best preachers in the early church, a guy named Apollos, and they instruct him more accurately in the way of the Lord. Now, when Paul lists them, he lists Priscilla first. Not because it flows better, but most likely because she was the better teacher. Not not that Aquila wasn't a good teacher, but she was probably the better teacher of the two. So, he lists her first. And then you find this woman named Jesus. Junia. You have, just like Priscilla and Aquila, Adronicus and Junica, Junia. That's how they're listed, so Adronicus is probably the better teacher of the two, they a husband and wife, and they just might have been considered part of the apostles. Romans 16, verse 7, greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. There is a whole debate today because people are saying that we're reading into the text what's there because that could actually be rendered as they are outstanding among the Apostles so with that in mind what I want to do is walk into some New Testament verses hopefully we can all be on the same page understanding God's grace and his goodness and I'm gonna talk through some verses that may sound strange to you and I was gonna have you turn here but I don't want you to turn there I want to read it to you and I just want you to see how this hits you as I read it okay so this is first Corinthians chapter 11 verses 3 through 12 Paul says this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man for man was not made from woman but woman from man neither was man created for woman but woman for man this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels if you ever going to argue with somebody you can't figure out how to end it just do that because of the angels just keep going (laughs) verse 11 nevertheless in the lord a woman is is not independent of man nor man of woman for as woman was made for man so man is now born of woman and all things are from god Okay, just take a deep breath, let that settle on you. And what I'm going to first do is I'm going to tell you in the midst of three interesting things that Paul is actually affirming here. The first one is this, Paul is affirming public ministry for women. And you probably think, how is that? Well, Paul says, women are praying and prophesying. He says, you know, put the veil on your head and wear that. But he says, they're praying and prophesying. And in this context, that would mean to deliver a message from God. And in that context, that would be in that congregation where there would be male and female, men and women. And that's really the most striking teaching about this text. This is a past departure from the history of Israel. Before Paul's time, in order to form a synagogue, you had to have 10 men. You could have a thousand women, didn't have 10 men. It was not a synagogue. Interesting thing happens in Acts. Paul goes down to the river where he assumes he's gonna find 10 men. There's gonna be a synagogue. There's not, there's just a bunch of women. And Paul's like, Okay, God, let's go. And he just steps in and starts teaching. The one ancient rabbinical commentary says this, Better the Torah should be burned than taught to a woman. Paul is saying, this is a brand new day. This is a brand new day. Teaching is to include women. Learning is to include women. Speaking and listening. How does this idea come about? It probably comes about from going back to Jesus and Mary and Martha. A lot of times people will look at the story of Mary and Martha and think it's like, "Oh, don't be busy like Martha, be contemplative like Mary." But again, no first-century reader would have understood that story that way because Jesus does not commend Martha who's doing what women were stereotypically doing at the time in the kitchen. He commends Mary He was doing what men stereotypically did in that culture. And if you care, there is really no record of a rabbi ever choosing a woman to be a disciple before Jesus. Before that right there. And if you've been to Element, we have walked through many different teachings in Element to help you understand that the household in the scriptures, well, that formed the basic infrastructure of the early church. Like they did not for several centuries have buildings like we do or organizations like we do. And so what you see is these households, that is what formed the basis of that early church. And in the New Testament, roughly half the households that Paul talks about were headed by women. And that's a staggering percentage in the ancient world. And that means there was a huge influence in leadership that they had in the church. And all of this flows out of how Jesus dealt with and treated and honored women. The second thing you see in 2 Corinthians 11, 11 is that women and men are equally called and mutually interdependent with one another. One of the key words in that passage that everybody freaks out about from 1 Corinthians 11 is the word head. Okay, in, in Greek, this word head is the word called kephale. And in, and we get actually today our word electroencephalogram from that. You guys don't care, but we get our word from that. Anyway, in English, we hear the word head, and metaphorically, through our context and language, remember we talked about three weeks ago, and then last week, what's the big picture? The big picture is Jesus. What's the cultural context? And that words mean things in that cultural context? Well, when we hear the word head, in our cultural context, what we think is boss or someone in charge, and I don't want to lose you in this, but that word is much more likely in the early stages there to be talking about the source. Of something. There's a whole debate today because you can't really find places in early Greek literature where that word kephale was used to mean boss. It always referred to the source of something like the headwaters of a river. So in this case, if you look at it all in context from the beginning to the end of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is going back to Genesis 1 and 2. And he's talking about that creation and what God did. What does God do? Well, Jesus creates Adam. Out of the side of Adam, God creates woman. And when Jesus comes, who sends Jesus? God the Father. It's this idea of this is the created order of what God did. Now, what you see is that in Paul's day, they lived in a culture where husbands were over wives as masters were over slaves. And what Paul is trying to do is push these people back to an understanding of what creation was supposed to look like, how we were supposed to be in ministry with one another, coming alongside one another. Paul is not saying our social system is the best expression of God's will for all of humanity of what we're doing in the Greco-Roman culture. What he's saying is there's a creation order of what this looks like in context. And I and I showed you last week the text in Genesis 1 is very careful to show you that God made the man and the woman in His image. He gives the man and the woman the mandate to stewardship and have responsibility over the earth and there is no really division of responsibilities in that until after the fall he says both are meant to have dominion over the earth which takes us to my third thing and that is women and men are to treat one another with dignity how do we know? In the context of 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul walks through this, Paul says, verse 7, But the woman is the glory of man. The word for glory there is word for reflection. And people will sometimes wonder, Well, does that mean the woman is lower than the man? It doesn't mean that. Because that same expression will be used in the Old Testament and it will tell you that Saul was the glory of Israel. That didn't diminish Saul. That's a tribute and an honor. And in context, you keep reading, goes to verse 9, Neither was man created from woman, but woman from man. What's that going back to? Well, we talked about Last week Genesis chapter 2 it's showing us this creation order in context God will say it is not good for the man to be alone I will make a helper suitable a helper fit for him and I told you that the word helper is the word that God uses for himself in the scriptures more than he ever uses it for people so it doesn't mean less than husbands ruling over their wives that comes out of the fall now, let me show you something else that's kind of interesting in this as well. If you if you jump back four chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, Paul is writing about marriage and sex, and he will say this, the woman does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And a lot of people stop right there like, oh, what? Well, in that day, that's what the law was. That's not a surprise. In the ancient world, a woman always belonged to somebody. In fact, we still sometimes even do this in weddings. We say, give them their hand in marriage. Uh, we, this isn't same cultural context as we have today but back then when that was done giving a hand in marriage that was a Roman practice and if you gave someone your daughter there to with hand to the person they were marrying that meant that that person now had legal authority over her they could also marry somebody without hand and that means they got married but the father still retained legal authority over her but somebody always had authority over the woman so paul says this the woman does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband that's just culture that's what's there but he doesn't stop there this is what he then says likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does and all the women are like what? What? I don't know how excited they get about that. I mean, I don't know. But but, but husbands right might just be thinking right there, my wife has authority over my body. What's the point of even being a husband anymore? The point is that in Christ, in the community of Jesus, we no longer live for ourselves. We have died to all that. We want to go back to creation and how God made us to be so the gospel can actually go forward. So we stop fighting one another and subjugating one another and live as God calls us to as a people complementing one another that takes the gospel forward. We now live for Jesus and one another. In 1 Corinthians 11, In that passage, Paul has that long discussion about veils and head coverings, and it seems so strange to us. But Corinth was a port city, had huge expressions of sexuality. The patron saint in Corinth was the goddess Aphrodite, which is where we get Aphrodisiac from. She is the goddess of love. Temple prostitution is part of that city's culture. And if you wanted to find a temple prostitute, you would find them because they had an unveiled head or short hair or a shaved head, and that's how you would identify them. And so most likely these instructions, when Paul says all of this, is meant his desire to say in the Christian community, our worship should look different. So they had these things called agape meals. We today simply call it communion and we give you a little cracker and some juice or some wine, but they would have huge meals. And the people in town would begin to hear about that. Oh, and they would translate agape as the love feast. They thought that Christians were involved in cannibalism because we would eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus Christ. What's going on with those people. And so Paul says, don't look like everybody else. Your worship should look different. Distinguish it from the promiscuity. And so don't look like one of the prostitutes. Wear this veil on your head. So our worship actually looks different. That does not mean, as some people have said, that all women in all cultures should wear head coverings. How do we know that? Because Paul is departing from Jewish custom because it was men in Israel who would wear prayer shawls over their head when they prayed. They would put their prayer shawl up, they would grab their tallits, their their tassels on their prayer shawls, and that's how they would pray. And so you know that Paul is writing to a particular culture. Paul's point is not about veils and that a woman is less than. It's that in Jesus' new community, men and women share together this divine call that God has placed in our lives to love each other and have the gospel go forward. Our priority is not our rights. Our priority is the forward proclamation of speaking the gospel of what Jesus did to save us. And that's the point. Now, let me move to some crazy verses as well. I mean, there's a lot of crazy verses, but I'll just give you two more, and, and I'll just kind of talk through these. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it says this, Let a learn, woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And just to give you a heads up on this, this is what's called a hapax of gomenon, which means it's only spoken in this way once in the scriptures. So sometimes it's hard to take theology out of something that is only said once. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Shh. Okay. Now, all the things we talked about, if you are here last week or not, but hopefully you got some of that this week, and if we're walking through this, what do we need to go in our minds Read something that's like, oh, women are less than? No, we need to look at who wrote the books, who they were written to, and why they were written, right? So big picture, uh, context, and words mean things. Paul writes these in what we call the post-resurrection timeline, it's before Jesus has returned, and he is instructing them, as I said, on proper worship inside the church. How do we live with one another in a society that doesn't understand what real Christianity is? A society that probably says, oh, this is what Christianity is all about, when they don't really know. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, sounds a lot like ours. So how do we live in the world in a way that reflects who Jesus really is? Everything that these people are encountering is brand new to them. Christianity is pretty new. And so you have people, they're coming from Jewish synagogues, and they're coming from these pagan backgrounds, and they're all mingling together within the church. Some people knew the God of Israel. Some people only knew all these pagan gods and goddesses. How do they worship together in a way that brings unity and reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, in Corinth, as I said, central to that was the Aphrodite worship. And so Paul writes the letters because they're asking him questions, and there's all these divisions in the church. And before he tells women to be silent, he constantly highlights their divisions. Paul was saying there is so many abuses of the unity In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul will say, you've all been given one spirit, one baptism. You are one body. There is no male or female. There's no Jew or Greek. There's no free or slave. There's not one that's better than the other. We are all one in Christ. That's how unity comes. Not by emphasizing how different we are, but focusing ourselves on the person of Jesus. In 1 Timothy, Timothy is in the city of Ephesus. That's where the letter is written to. So the church in Ephesus also has significant problems, as every church in that day does. Many of the people in that church come from the worship of Artemis. Now, this is, these women from the church of Artemis are now learning to worship Jesus. Artemis, as the Roman Diana, was an all-female religion with castrated men who served as priests. And so now they come into a church, and they're learning about Jesus, who is a man who died for our sins and rose from the grave. And so 1 Timothy, he's canceling these people about dress codes and sensuality because they really have no grounding for it. So first we have to understand, what has Paul already said that we know? That there are women who spoke. You have Junia and Priscilla and Phoebe. He acknowledges just in 1 Corinthians 11, a couple chapters before, that women prayed and prophesied in the church. He doesn't condemn it. Paul will speak of men and women praying and sharing with each other and unless he's contradicting himself just a few words later something else is going on so you have to say what's the context here what's the context well in first corinthians paul talks about the gifts of the holy spirit he does not say that men and women should use these gifts differently so it can't mean paul thinks they should be totally silent that is not what he could be saying we go to specific instructions cultural context and we see that these different cultures had certain things so There's a cultural custom that during this time in learning situations, students were required to be silent. To not interrupt the teacher in Jewish and Greek learning, which men were typically a part of, because the men were educated, they would go to these places, and there was decorum that required student silence during teaching. And so, the, the silence here is not tape your mouth yet. It refers to this quiet demeanor that would be used at the time. That's appropriate for students who wanted to learn. And this is amazing. Why? Because women were learning in a culture where most women weren't allowed to learn. This whole idea of being in submission here isn't about lower stature. It's a posture of learning. We want to hear what God has to say before I want to know what I think about it. Sometimes people get together in these Bible studies and they go, what'd you feel about this verse? What'd you feel about this verse? What'd you feel about this verse? It's like a bunch of people pulling ignorance. It's like we need to understand what the scriptures actually say, not how we feel about it. What is actually said in the scriptures? So Paul is most likely giving instructions on about orderly learning. Well, what about women learning from their husbands at home? Well, first off, Paul doesn't give these instructions to men because men were instructed in classical learning. So they probably sat there pretty quietly. And when you're saying, so you go home, your husbands have education. They should be willing to see you as an equal enough to teach you all the things that they have learned that you guys would actually grow together as a couple understanding this. He's better, better educated and he should instruct you in Christ. Scott McKnight says that these verses point to the idea that learning precedes teaching. We have to learn before we can ever teach. It's about learning in a respectful way that can help others learn as well. Also, in this time, in most conservative Judaism, even today, but in Greek learning, when and if there were ever women present, and in Judaism, if there were women present, they would sit separately. They would sit separately. And for Judaism, that's a custom. It is not a biblical directive. And so in some places, when this happened, there would be this separate separate seating, like in Ephesus. And some women may have heard something because of how they were taught in the temple that they used to be in, and they would have a question, right, and they would maybe shout across the room, hey, Ralph, what's that mean? What's, I don't know what he's saying. you'll get back to you. What's he saying? Can you imagine how distracting that would be? No? Okay, this is one of the reasons we offer children's ministries in Element, Because sometimes your kids, they, they hear me talk in this room, and then they get louder, and louder, and louder. Because it's like, woo, it's, it's just what kids do. There's nothing wrong with that, that's what kids do. Sometimes it's like, it, you're like, oh my, goodness the kid's running up and down the aisle, and people are going, what's wrong with that kid up and down the aisle? What's happening there, right? Because we don't know. This is why we offer children's ministry, so you can have 30, 45 minutes today to, to kind of have this place and time to learn. That kind of goes back to this. If women were single and confused, they'd probably start talking among themselves. And Paul is saying, just let's go through the teaching, through the learning. If you have questions, we can do that later. But let's learn together. It's all about unity and worship together. And it makes sense why Paul called for silence. And what we know for sure, no matter what you think about this, is Paul is not calling women to be second-class citizens or that they had lesser value. It's that... If if that happened, we would invalidate everything in the scriptures that we know about the scriptures. And so what we see is something unprecedented since mankind brought sin into the world. And that is God is restoring what had been lost. That's what's happening. Historian Rodney Stark writes this. He says, Christianity was unusually appealing to women because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than did women in the Greco-Roman world at large. Historically, has the church misused biblical text to harm one another? Yes, it has. Has women mostly been the subject of that harm? Yes, it has. But that's a misreading of the scripture. And that is not what the text speaks about. God is clear that He made men and women as His image bearers to make a difference in the world together. It must be done together. And we will never do that if we are trying to subjugate or control or fight one another or place ourselves before the gospel. We must be unified using the gifts God has given us. And what you see is really interesting. Throughout the history of the world, when Christian men and women actually partner in ministry, great things happen when equality and freedom is brought about because we find our freedom in Christ himself. Uh, In the Asian world, what they used to do is they would bind women's feet as children, severely disabling them. Why? Because they thought it made them more pleasurable to men. Do you know that Christians were instrumental, men and women both, in nearly abolishing that practice? In India, when uh, women were actually expected to throw themselves on their dead husband's funeral pyre when when they burned him. And Christians, and Christian missionaries, men and women working together, have nearly ended that practice. This is what happens when we work together, when we focus on the gospel. Is there a long way to go? Sure, there's a long way to go, but we need to read our Bibles in context, not just random verses that make us angry, not just random things we don't understand. We want to truly live in the fullness that the gospel brings, because that's what this is all about. And I feel like today I've just spent a whole lot of time giving you a ton of information But I want you to understand that all this information is to help us to understand what the gospel brings. The gospel is meant to bring us to a place of unity with one another, where we can work together for the forward progress and the proclamation of what God has done. And that will never happen when we focus on ourselves first. We must be those who focus first on the person of Christ and what He has done. And this is why every week, even as we walk through all this stuff, we take you to this place of communion. Communion is the place where we lay down our rights. We lay down all the things that we think, I've got to have this. And we lay before Christ and say, what do you have for me? How do you want me to live? What is the call that you have in my life? And so you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us. Every single one of us, men and women both. And you dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a reminder of his blood that was shed for us because we cannot save ourselves. And so we trust his Grace given to us in the good news of the gospel. And the gospel, it simply means this proclamation of good news. The proclamation of the good news is that God has come to rescue us in the person of Christ. He died for our sins. All the ways that we have hurt one another, Jesus died for that on the cross. All the ways that we have offended and run from God, Jesus died for that on the cross because we could not pay for our sins because we have already rebelled against God. But Jesus does it in our place, and he lays his righteousness upon us as a gift when we believe in him. And then he raises us to new life. This is the power of the resurrection, that we get to live out a brand new life again because of what God has done. And that new life is meant to be exemplified by the gospel being lived out in our lives, by the results of what he has done. So we treat one another in a way that Jesus is exalted, and that we treat one another with grace as we complement each other to go out and live in the world in ways that reflect who God is. And if you need prayer today, maybe you are someone who's felt like you are less than, that you have been subjugated by other people, and you don't know what to do when you hear that God is a father, and he's portrayed with all this male language in the Bible. We'd love to be able to pray with you about that and talk with you about that and why God actually reveals himself that way, because it's so important in the Old Testament that God was seen as a father to the fatherless. And it's beautiful when you understand it all in context. Again, we have to understand it in context. Maybe you're someone, again, like I said last week, who looks down on other people. And you don't know how to get past that. We'd love to talk to you as well. Um, I was talking to somebody about this this week. And they said this one thing to me that it really stuck with me. And I was like, oh, that's, that's great. Because when they left, they said, you know what? You and I don't agree on some of these things. But I appreciate that you talk to me and you don't have me in your office every other day trying to change my mind, it's that we can talk about these things and still be able to fellowship and worship Christ together. And it is, because the point is Jesus. So we need to be about Jesus. And if you need prayer, please talk to Sarah at the Welcome Center and and we will love to pray with you. There's offering boxes next to all the doors we give because God has given so much to us. It's just part of our worship. And I encourage you to grab some sermon notes, maybe ask some people those questions on the back, not out of context. (laughs) Be like, what? But talk about them in context and some of the things that kind of come up in those conversations. So that we'd be a people who really, truly do focus on the grace and the goodness of who God is and what he has said, and what he continues to do in our lives. The great restorative work that God has done for all of us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would move us to be a people who understand what the gospel truly brings. That we would understand what the gospel is, but also what the gospel brings. That there is hope and restoration. That there is a coming back together again of The people in this world who so often we just want to fight and put our rights forward and say, I want this or I want that, rather than taking a step back and saying, God, what do you want in my life? How do you want me to reach those people? Teach us to understand our own great salvation that we receive from you so that our focus would be where it needs to be. Not upon ourselves, but upon who you have called us to be that we truly would become your ambassadors to this world, men and women both, working hand in hand with one another as originally intended in the garden. That you are bringing a restoration to your people and teach us to live out that restorative work in what we do so that you are glorified because it is all about you and it is not about us. And as our hearts and lives change, you will be more glorified by what takes place in how we worship and honor you with our words and our deeds. Father, teach us to be those who walk with you, who follow you, who have you as a center of our lives. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So just take a couple minutes right now. You know, there's a lot of information today. I get it. I get it. Just take a couple of moments though and think through who God is calling you to reach out to. Maybe there's been some questions you might have had about the scriptures and it's kind of kept you from fully engaging or fully trusting them. Ask God to reveal to you those kind of places in your own heart and life that you've kind of walled off a bit. And ask him to begin to tear down those walls that you built up and ask him to show you what the truth is so that we would truly live lives that are surrendered to all that he says and that we would trust the Bible, that we wouldn't be like, a, like many places are coming today that says, well, we we'll the Bible for this, but we're not going to believe it for this, that we'd be able to understand that we can trust the entirety of the scriptures and what they have said and what they call us into. Ask that God would give you a willingness to trust Him as you step out into every area of life. And then come into communion, sing some songs with us, and step out into every area of life with Him as the center of all things.